Well, good morning, everyone. Isn't it good to see the people of God being the hands and feet of God? Yeah, we love that, and we're thankful for the way that God uses his people in those situations. My name is Matt, and I'm a pastor here at Friendship Church, and occasionally, Kenny gives me an opportunity to fill in here in Shakopee, and so I'm glad to be here today. And I'm going to be leading us through our sermon in our sermon series, which is entitled, Oh, When God Says Jump. We are looking at accounts from the book of Genesis from 4,000 years ago from the life of a man named Abraham and his wife Sarah. And as we're looking at those accounts from 4,000 years ago, we're recognizing that in those, God has given us fundamental lessons about faith that are for us. Every time in the New Testament when Abraham's name is mentioned, it's mentioned alongside faith. Every time. He is a person who is associated with faith. And so we're not just looking at some accounts from 4,000 years ago. We are seeing God's word for us when it comes to how we follow him and live in faith. Would you guys pray pray with me before we jump in? You can pray for me and with me. Father, uh, what goodness there is to be with your people. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our lives right now, changing us impacting us, transforming us because we are meeting with the living God. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a a high schooler uh, living in the beautiful town of St. Cloud, uh, I began to watch a show pretty regularly called The Wonder Years. I watched it every week when it was on, and then it became reruns, and I started watching it even more than that. And The Wonder Years was a show about Kevin and Winnie and their nerdy friend Paul growing up in late 60s and then early 70s America. And I love this show because some of the episodes I would watch, and they would make me laugh and laugh, and some of the episodes that I would watch, my girlfriend Erica that was sitting next to me would cry and she would snuggle in close. Either way, I won. One day, I was sitting in the lunchroom in my college, and as I was sitting there eating lunch my junior or senior year in college, chair across the table is pulled out, and I look up from eating, and who is it? It's Paul, sitting across from me there in the lunchroom. Uh, or, or I should say, actor Josh Saviano is sitting across from me there in the lunchroom. And all of a sudden, the adrenaline just starts flowing through my body. It's Paul. He's there with me. Do you know how many times that guy's been in my living room? Do you know how many times he's kept Kevin on the straight and narrow? And now Paul's sitting across from me at dinner. This is exciting. And I'm like, what do I say? What do I say? What do I do? And all I could think was, don't call him Paul. Don't mention the show. And so I said something eloquent along the lines of, hey. And then I went back to eating my dinner. As I was sitting there, there was so much energy that I couldn't think straight as I was sitting across from this person that had been in my living room so many times. You ever had that experience where you look up and all of a sudden you're face-to-face with a celebrity or well-known person? What that's like. 
Now, let's be honest, even in this day, Josh Saviano, who I think is now an investment banker in New York, uh, was not an A-list celebrity. He was not even a B-list celebrity. He's like a D or E-list celebrity, right? And yet, when I was seated across from him, it caused so much excitement. I'm like, ah, what do we do? Now, imagine if you looked up, and instead of some celebrity, it was God himself in human form sitting across from you. What would your reaction be like in that situation? God himself, and you know it's him, sitting across from you in human form. That is precisely what happens to Abraham today. And as we look at Genesis 18, you can turn there in your Bibles. As we look at Genesis 18 together, we're going to see that Abraham looks up and there's God. And we're going to see some key lessons in faith that are in this account from 4,000 years ago. The first verse of Genesis 18 says this, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham is chilling out in the door of his tent under the shade of the tree because he is avoiding the Middle Eastern sun in the middle of the day. And when he looks up, who is there? Who is there? Look at verse 2. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Who is it that has appeared to Abraham in this situation? Verse 1 says it is the Lord that appeared to him. And if you noticed, all four letters in the word Lord are capitalized there. So what name is that? Right? Yahweh has appeared to Abraham in this situation. Then we're told that three men stand in front of him. And so what it seems like we have here is what is called a theophany, which is a fancy word for the Old Testament times when God takes on a human form in order to interact and talk with a person. There are actually a few different times in the Old Testament that these theophanies happen where God takes upon himself a human form in order to have interaction with a person. And as we read through the rest of Genesis 18 and early into Genesis 19, it appears that two angels have come with him and have also taken on a human form for this appearance to Abraham. God stands before Abraham with two of his angels. And as we might expect, Abraham is like, ah, uh, don't leave right away. This, this is my shot to talk to you. And uh, I should probably serve you well. And so Abraham kicks the hospitality into overdrive. Look at these next couple of verses. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate Abraham's mind isn't just running. Abraham's body is now running. 
He is running all over his household trying to get things ready. And now the household has all jumped into action. And everybody is running and everyone is moving quickly. And there is all kinds of hectivity going on, if I can make up a word, in order to make sure that we get all of these things out to the Lord and his angels in due time. After all of the running around that Abraham has done, at the very end we read that he went and he just kind of stood by them. i got to believe at this point he went, And he gave them a chance to ask him a question. Verse 9. They said to him, where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. Now, wait a minute. There are a number of people in the region who knew Abram's wife. But they knew her as what? Sarai. Her name was just changed. And here are these three wanderers from a distance who come And one of them knows to call her Sarah? Right? How is that possible? It's possible because this is God Almighty who gave her the new name in the last chapter, who has now appeared before Abraham in human form. And now God Almighty repeats the promise that he made in the last chapter. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Abraham's almost 100. Sarah's almost 90. I love the way it puts it here. The way of the woman had ceased to be with her, right? She was beyond childbearing years. And because she is beyond childbearing years, it prompts her reaction in verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Sarah knows the pleasure of being a mom has passed her by. Those years have come and gone. She's not going to bear children anymore. So she laughs, notice, to herself. She doesn't laugh out loud. She laughs to herself, which is why it had to be a little shocking and a little unnerving. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, oh no, but you did laugh. Sarah laughed to herself, so she figured that she could lie about this, and no one would know. But Sarah didn't understand who she was dealing with. He knows. He is the Lord. And the Lord says, I know. You did laugh. The Lord didn't grow up in Minnesota. And so he is not passive aggressive enough to just let it go and then talk about it later when she's gone. The Lord says, oh no, let's have a little bit of confrontation here. You lied. You you lied. You did laugh. And I know you did. Sarah's faith fails in this situation. Just like Abraham's faith failed last week when God said, you and Sarah are going to have a child. And what did Abraham do? He laughed at the notion. Both of them have failed in their faith in the exact same way. And we're going to return to this, and this is going to be the meat of what we talk about today, is these lessons in faith that we can learn from this situation. But before we get there, Let's finish out the rest of the chapter and see what happens because it is time for the Lord and these two angels to move on. 
They have finished the food that Abraham has brought to them, and now they're headed out. Where are they headed? Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed by him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. The Lord is in these verses having a conversation with these two angels that he has brought along in order to explain to them why he is going to bring Abraham into the councils of his judgments. He doesn't bring most people into his, the councils of his judgments. But he says to these angels, I'm going to bring Abraham in. Because he is the one that I've chosen to start this line with. Because he's the one who is the forefather of the covenant promise. I'm going to bring him in. I'm going to share with him what I am about to do. And what is he about to do? Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. And their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. The word here for outcry, when it is used in the Old Testament, represents the cry of a victim against their victimizer. When this word is used in the Old Testament, it represents the cry of a victim against their victimizer. And so it's this exact word that's used in Genesis chapter 3 about Cain and Abel. Your brother's blood outcries to me. Same word. It cries out to me from the ground. The the victim's blood cries out against the victimizer here. Exodus 3, 7, talking about Israel and Egypt. I have heard Israel's outcry because of their taskmasters, Egypt. Each and every time it's about the crying out of the victims against their victimizers. And Sodom has a lot of victims. As a matter of fact, we read about it in Ezekiel 16, 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. What was their guilt? She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. The sexual perversions of Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be highlighted in the next chapter. But what Ezekiel says is there was a significant problem because they had all kinds of wealth and all kinds of ease and there were people hurting all around Sodom and Gomorrah and they said, tough for you. God says, The outcry of those victims has reached my ears. And I've come down in order to check it out for myself. Why does God have to come down to check it out for himself? Doesn't he know? Doesn't God know what has been going on? we We know he knows what's been going on because he refers to it in verse 20 as the great evil that has been taking place there. As a matter of fact, we also just saw him uh, call out Sarah for a laugh that didn't take place out loud. Does God know? Yeah, he knows. And so what's being communicated to us when God says, I'm going to check it out? Well, that is going to be a primary question that we are going to answer next week. 
when we talk about the judgment that comes upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And when we talk about judgment for unrighteousness in general. Because God's coming down and the thoroughness, the completeness of his judgment are a large part of what we need to look at next week when we look at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Ad, uh, Abraham now begins to pray. Uh, he, he's talking to the Lord, right? He, he's he's going to pray for Sodom and Gomorrah at this point. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just or what is righteous, it can be translated? Absolutely. The judge of all the earth will do what is just. He will do what is righteous. And so he tells Abraham, yes, if there are 50 righteous people found in Sodom and Gomorrah, I will not destroy those cities. I am the judge of all of the earth and I will do what is righteous. I will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And so if we can find 50, I will not destroy those cities. Probably no sooner does the Lord answer when Abram begins to, Abraham begins to panic a little bit on the inside, he knows Sodom and Gomorrah and he's like, oh, I might have shot a little high with 50. Uh, and so in the rest of the chapter, what do we see? Abraham coming back, Lord, what if there's 45? And the Lord says, yep, for the sake of 45, I won't destroy those cities. Lord, what if there's 40? Yep, for the sake of 40, I won't. What if there's 30? What if there's 20? We make our way down to 10. What if there are 10 righteous and what does the Lord say? Yes, for the sake of 10 righteous, I will not destroy these cities. And what happens in the next chapter? God destroys these cities because there was no one of righteousness to be found. God's judgment with Sodom and Gomorrah is an Old Testament picture, a foretaste of the great judgment on the day of judgment that God will have towards sin. It is a foreshadowing that is meant to communicate to us that God will punish sin and what that punishment for sin will be like. Just a, a small taste. And that is what we're going to be covering next week. I'm going to let Kenny cover on righteousness and judgment. But today, I want to focus us on the lessons of faith we see in this passage. Right, next week we'll deal with unrighteousness and judgment. This week let's focus on the lessons of faith that we see in this passage. And I'm going to pull out four essential lessons of faith from this 4,000-year-old account that are imperative for us as we follow after Jesus. Here we go. Faith key number one, the foundation of faith is God's promises. The foundation of faith is God's promises. Abraham in chapter 17 laughs when God says he's going to have a child. Sarah in chapter 18 laughs when God says he's going to have a child. Right? They, they're laughing when what should they be doing? They should be trusting in God and believing. 
They should have faith. Why should they have faith that they're going to have a child? Is it because every couple is guaranteed a child? Nope, that's not the way it works. Is it because they really, really want one? Nope, that's not the way it works. Why should they have had faith that they were going to have a child? Because God promised them a child. And it's God's promises that are the foundation of the guarantees of faith that we trust in. God's promises are the foundation of our faith. Uh, Recently, I've been having uh, more headaches than normal in my life. You can insert a joke here about working with Kenny. That's great. (laughs) He's probably being nice to me in Prior Lake, and here I am being mean to Kenny. Is it possible, can I be guaranteed that if I just have enough belief in the end of my headaches that I will never experience a headache again for the rest of my life? No, that's not the way it works. Why not? Because God hasn't given us a headache promise within his word. God has not given us a headache. Actually, that's not true. God has given us a headache promise within his word, hasn't he? What has he promised us? He has promised us that if we are his children, that one day we will stand before him and we will be given new bodies that never have any headaches, never again, that never have any aches or pains whatsoever, and that last and go on forever. That's his promise that he has made to us, and that's what I can place my faith and my trust in. What has he said will be true until that day? 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says, the outward self will waste away. Is this whole mess right here going to get better with each passing year? Nope, that's not the way that it's designed, is it? God hasn't made us a headache promise. God has made us a promise that one day we will have brand new bodies with him, free of all disease, free of all death, free of all pain. And his pathway for us to get there is the wearing out and destruction of these bodies. And so the disease and death that comes upon me is actually a pathway to the promises of God. And so I have hope and I have faith in those promises. My faith isn't guaranteed based on what I really, really want. The desires of the flesh, the idols the world puts around me that I say, yeah, I'd like a little bit of that and a little bit of that. My faith foundation is the promises of God. I read in an article a while back how Katy Perry, the entertainer, attributed her good looks and shapely form to her faith in God. She grew up in a church environment and she said, at one point, as an awkward teenager, I was laying on my bed and I just cried out in faith to God, make me beautiful and make me shapely. Shapely is not the word she used, but I'm, I'm cleaning it up a little bit here. She says, and now I am because I placed my faith in God. Is that how faith in God works? Whatever fleshly desire I want, whatever idol the world puts out there that I want a little more of, I just believe really hard, I want to get into this school and I want this job and I want this raise and I want to marry this person and I'm just going to believe it and God as my genie has to do the things that I say. No, that's not how it works. Right? The foundation of faith is not my desires. 
The foundation of faith is not my fleshly wants. The foundation of faith is the promises of God. That's what we're guaranteed. That's what we can trust in in our lives. And so, what should we do? We should get hyper-familiar with those promises, shouldn't we? If, if those are the guarantees of God that we can trust in faith, shouldn't we become super familiar with the promises of God, understanding which ones are for us? Because we can claim those and place our faith and our trust in those. The foundation of faith is God's promises. Second, faith grows by focusing on God, not obstacles. That's faith key number two. Faith comes from focusing on God, not obstacles. Abraham last week and Sarah this week both laughed when God said that they were going to have a child. Why did they laugh? Because their eyes were firmly focused on the obstacle to that promise coming true. And what was that obstacle? They're old. They're beyond childbearing years. It's a really big obstacle. And they were focused in on that obstacle instead of being focused on... Yahweh Yehira, God our provider. El Shaddai, the God of all might and power. Our faith grows when we intentionally shift our focus from the obstacles to our God. God is regularly calling on us to intentionally shift our focus from the obstacles in this life to God and what he has said. This is what happened in Peter's life in Matthew chapter 14. He's commanded by Jesus to come to him on the water. Peter starts in. He's focused in on Jesus. And then Matthew 14 makes a special point to say, and then Peter, what? Saw the wind and the waves. His focus shifts from the Lord to the obstacles around. And what takes place? He begins to sink. Right? His faith fails because he's focused in on the obstacles instead of focusing in on God. I told a group recently, when I think of focus, real focus, I think of my dog when I have meat on my plate. Right? Every bit of that dog's attention is on that meat that I have on my plate. She is just sitting there, and she will not move. You could set off a bomb next to her. It doesn't matter. Like She is focused in. And if I move that plate 12 inches to the right, where does her focus go? 12 inches to the right. And if I take that plate and I move it over to the counter, what happens? She goes over to the counter and she is trained in on that meat. Right? That's focus. And there are times in our lives where we become thoroughly focused on the obstacles that are in front of us instead of on our God, the God of all might and power. It's so easy for me to get focused in on the bills, and how can we possibly make all of these payments instead of focusing in on God who has promised to provide everything that I genuinely need as I follow after him. It's so easy for me to get focused in on the hurt that I have and, ah, oh, just that person, I can't stand them, instead of focusing in on the God who can work forgiveness into every one of his children's heart. It's so easy to get focused in on the sins that I keep committing. I just, they always overwhelm me. Instead of focusing in on the God who promises, no, there, there's no temptation that has to overwhelm you. Right? I, I stand with you. You can overcome these things. And so he calls us to be a people who are intentionally moving our focus to God instead of the obstacles. 
And that's about the fifth time I've used the word intentionally because it doesn't just happen. Uh, Our focus doesn't just drift to God. There has to be intentional decision to move our focus to Him by digging into His Word and spending time with Him. By spending all kinds of time with our fellow believers who are running after Jesus, who regularly are calling our attention to the way God sees things instead of the obstacles that are around us. God calls us to be a people who focus. I said at Core Discipleship a couple of weeks ago, I think this is why Jesus gives us the model for praying in the way that he does. Because he knows that given our own fleshly desires, we will just run to God and fixate more on the obstacles. God, the obstacles, the obstacles. Can you get rid of the obstacles? What are we going to do about the obstacles, God? But when Jesus teaches us to pray, we're halfway through the prayer and the only focus we've had is on him at that point. Lord, your name, it's so great. And we are focused in on the greatness of his name and exalting his name. And then it's your kingdom, your rule and reign in my life and the lives of those around. And the fact that you're going to come back and this life is temporary, it refocuses all of my perspectives. And Lord, your, your will, what you have said you want done in your word, I'm refocusing my heart and my mind around those things as I'm praying these things to you. We're halfway through the prayer and there's not even been an opportunity for our obstacles to come up because God has given us an intentional model for prayer that drives us away from focusing on the obstacles and instead focusing on Him. Because that is where worry and anxiety are alleviated and peace and faith are initiated is when we're focused on Him. Instead of the obstacles. Faith key number two, faith grows by focusing on God, not obstacles. Faith key number three, faith fails don't need to define you. Abraham and Sarah have failed several times as we've been walking through this sermon series, right? Genesis chapter 12, they're going down to Egypt and lying to everybody. It's a mess. We saw the whole Hagar plot in 16. We saw Abraham laugh in 17. We saw Sarah laugh in 18. We have seen them fail on multiple occasions. And yet as we read the New Testament, what is the primary witness about Abraham and Sarah in the New Testament? That they are people of great faith. These failures don't define them. Why? Why are they seen as people of great faith? Because every time that they fail in faith in these accounts, they immediately come back and begin to worship God again and live the next chapter in faith. They don't allow one failure in faith to drive them away from God and create more failure. They immediately come back and begin to worship God. Genesis chapter 12. Abram and Sarah go down to Egypt. They pull that whole messy operation where they claim that, ah, she's just my sister. She gets taken into Pharaoh's harem, and Abraham's getting rich off of all of this. Pharaoh, a wicked man, calls out Abraham and says, what kind of messed up deception are you pulling? It's all icky. That's the theological term. Then at the beginning of Genesis chapter 13, what happens? Abraham returns to the promised land, to the altar that he has built, and he worships God, and he cries out to him. And throughout chapter 13, he lives in faith. Chapter 17, Abraham laughs at the idea that he and Sarah are going to have a child. 
The Lord continues to talk to him. And Abraham continues to talk to the Lord and worship him. And ultimately, what is the second half of Genesis 17 about? Abraham's faithful obedience to the commands of God. Abraham does what God called him to do, and he takes a flint knife, and they circumcise the hundreds of guys who are a part of his household. And at age 99, Abraham goes under that flint knife in order to be circumcised. (laughs) They have this enormous circumcision party in the household of Abraham because after the unfaithfulness, they act in faithfulness. Got to believe that circumcision party was followed by a great big lay around and do nothing party for a couple of days. Wives, you, you think your husband's whiny when he's got a cold, <sighs> right? That's bad. Chapter 18, Sarah laughs. She laughs about this idea that they're going to have a child. Well, nine or ten months later, what happens? They have a child. How did that happen? This isn't a virgin birth. What happened here? Right? Abraham and Sarah, after laughing, believed the Lord and did those things by which a child comes about. I hope I don't need to put a finer point on it than that. At 99 and 89, their faith leads them to obedience in this situation. Because their faith fails didn't define them. Yeah, they failed. But they went back to the Lord, spent time with him, and moved forward in the next chapter in faith, didn't they? This is such an important lesson for us because every time we fail, there is this fleshly temptation in order to back away from God, like Adam and Eve did. Uh Uh-oh, we failed, we better hide. We're ashamed, we better hide. And what happens when we back away from God in shame? We create distance between us and God, and so we... Fail again. What happens when we fail again? We experience more shame. And we back away from God. What happens when we back away from God a little further? We fail again. This shame cycle pulls us further and further away from God. But God doesn't want us to enter into that shame cycle. He's a loving Father. And when you fail, what does He want? He wants you to come back, be with Him. When my kids were growing up in my house, this is going to shock some of you, but when my kids were growing up in my house, they did things wrong. Right? They, they disobeyed and did things wrong at various times. And as a dad, what did I want in those situations? I wanted them to stay away from me for months on end. Right? No, I love my kids. What did I want? When my kids screwed up, what did I want? I wanted them to run back into the room where I was, jump up on my lap, and let's talk about it. Let's work it out. Let's spend time together. Did they need to confess? Did they need to apologize? Yes, but those things never happen at a distance. They only happen up close. And in that same way, God, who is a perfectly loving Father, wants what from us? He doesn't want when we sin, when we fail, for it to drive us away from Him. He wants us to come back to Him, to jump up into Abba, Father's lap. Yes, confess what we've done. Yes, say we're sorry for what we've done. But spend time with him. Worship him. Cry out to him. Our faith fails don't need to define us. We don't need to be driven away from God 
instead we can be people who respond by drawing close to God and living the next chapter in faith. What does that look like in your life? Maybe this last chapter you're like, "Mm, I can see some failure here, here, and here. But I want to move forward in faith. What does that look like for you? The last key about faith that I want us to see here is God is faithful even, even when we are not. Sarah laughs and lies about her unbelief. Abraham laughed at the promise. What does God do in that situation? He says, oh, you guys are going to laugh? Okay. Covenant's broken. I'm out. Right? Is that what God does in this situation? Absolutely not. Their failure doesn't in any way overthrow the covenant that was made. Why? Because the covenant was God's alone. Remember Genesis 15? And there is that ceremony of covenant that takes place. God does not invite Abraham to walk through that ceremony of covenant with him. God alone walks through that that ceremony. Because the covenant doesn't depend upon Abraham and his righteousness and his goodness. Abraham, if you're just good enough, Abraham, if you're just righteous enough, instead the covenant depends upon God's goodness and God's grace. And so even as Abraham and Sarah fail, the covenant is not undone. Because it is a covenant of grace that God has made with his people. Does that sound familiar? I love the way Paul puts it in 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. This is a poem that Paul writes in this passage. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Did you catch the shocking flow of that four-line poem that Paul puts together. Look at it. He says, if we have died with him, this is positive in this context, right? We've died with Christ. We've been crucified with Christ. If we have died with him, positive, we will also live with him, positive. If we endure, positive, we will also reign with him, positive. If we deny him, negative, he will also deny us, negative. If we are faithless, negative, He remains faithful, positive. Who would have expected? Who would have expected this at this point? It's a beautiful, beautiful turn in this poem that communicates to us that even at times of our failure, even at times of our faithlessness, that our God does not pull out of the covenant that he has made with us because he is faithful. The covenant depends upon him. It is based in his grace and his goodness, and we're so thankful that it is. Every time we come to the table and we take the elements, the bread and the cup, we are celebrating this fact, that we've entered into a covenant that doesn't depend on our goodness and our righteousness. We've entered into a covenant that depends on the fact that he's gracious and he is faithful. And so as we take these elements today, the bread and the cup, let me encourage you to continue to think about this. He's gracious. He is faithful. The one who began a good work in you is going to see it through to completion. He's going to see it through because this is his covenant and his work in you. I'm going to pray for us and then 
As the music plays, you guys can make your way around to the tables and take the, grab the elements, bring them back to your seats, and we'll all take them together in just a moment. Father, what goodness there is in this. You're faithful. You're so gracious. We recognize in the sins of Abraham and Sarah, their lack of faith, how often these attitudes are represented in us. And all we can say is thank you for your mercy and your grace. Jesus, we celebrate what you have done in order to bring us into this family together now. In Jesus' name.